Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. Hope you're doing well. We're back with a good friend, Vox Day. He is a multiple-time Hugo Award nominee, a professional game designer, writer of epic fantasy novels, and is the author of a book I highly recommend, Social Justice Warriors Always Lie, Taking Down the Thought Police, as well as Cuckservative, How Conservatives Betrayed America. Now, if you don't know what the word Cuckservative means, you really, really just need to read that book. Uh, Vox maintains a pair of popular blogs, Vox Populi and Alpha Game, which between, which between them average millions of page views per month. You better get that right, or Mike Cernovich, got to check your math. And uh, you can find him at voxday.blogspot.com, and we'll put his other links below. Vox, uh, great to chat with you again. Good to see you again, Stefan. So we have, I mean, we both have had experience, you certainly more than me, in trying to battle uh, some of the um, collectivisty, lefty, social justice warrior aspect of the art world. Uh, I went uh, to the National Theatre School in Canada for a couple of years studying playwriting and acting, uh, and uh, I uh, worked uh, with uh, agents trying to get published and so on. And it's an exciting journey, to put it mildly, if you're not in the general. Here's some pretty words describing ugly incidents that seems to be the modern form of storytelling. Now, of course, you have um, publishing companies. You have worked extensively in this area. What has your experience been? Uh, as you talk about in Social Justice Warriors Always Lie, uh, every organization that is not explicitly right-wing will almost always devolve towards uh, the left-wing. How far do you think this uh, rot, we could say, has gone into the art world? I think that it has permeated it entirely. The entire publishing infrastructure is completely converged, uh, so much so that they don't even have any serious interest in selling books. They're much more concerned about uh, gatekeeping. They're much more concerned about selling the uh, political narrative, whatever that happens to be at the moment. And... You know, if you wanted to get published uh, in the science fiction and fantasy world right now, you would be much better off to be a you know black lesbian transgender uh, individual writing about uh, some sort of exotic sexual perversions than you would uh, if you were a white male scientist uh, writing about actual science fiction of the sort that that you know, you and I would tend to think of as science fiction. Well, this this is the stuff that I grew up with. I was a huge science fiction fan, and it was just great storytelling. You know, there was the occasional dips into quasi-mysticism with uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Childhood's Ends and stuff like that. But as far as fantasy and science went, I didn't care. And I, I've never particularly cared whether it's a man or a woman writing. I actually uh, grew up on Enid Blyton books in England, uh, and I didn't even find out for many years that it was a woman. It just never really crossed my mind who wrote. I just wanted great stories. And that aspect that it's not the quality of the stories uh, and you're aiming at delivering the best stories to the audience, but rather you are attempting to gain some political agenda, to gain some political end. Uh, that is something that never really crossed my mind growing up because, of course, I grew up in a time when this kind of stuff wasn't uh, sort of meat and bone marrow of the entire industry. And it took me quite a while to <laughs> realize what a headwind I was sailing against. Yeah, it's really remarkable to see how things have changed. I mean, the you know what, what began happening... Um, the, the thing that really kicked it all off was around the time that um, the science fiction writers of America changed their name to uh, science fiction and fantasy writers of America because there was a, a active debate that, that took place at that time 
And Anne McCaffrey actually threatened to leave unless they changed the rules and um, in, endorsed fantasy writers because basically there just weren't very many women writing uh, actual science fiction. And so, uh, you know, for whatever reason, women have, female writers have always tended to gravitate more towards fantasy rather than, than to science fiction. And, you know, there's a lot of theories as to why, but regardless, that's, that's what the facts have been. It's humanities and, versus STEM, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um, in any event... Uh, what happened is, the, you know, the same type of thing that we've discussed before. Um, you you had the entryism, you had the people who were much more interested in the organization and running the organization. The other critical change that happened around the same time was, uh, in order to belong to the uh, SFWA, you needed to requalify. So basically, if you did not uh, maintain your qualifications. Uh, which essentially involved publishing a novel, I think, every two or every three years. I can't remember which. Um, you know, you were not considered a professional writer, and therefore you couldn't be a voting member of it. Well, you know, it was decided that, well, this isn't fair. Um, you know, what if Robert Heinlein didn't write a book for four years? Then how, how ridiculous would it be that, that he wouldn't qualify as a professional writer? But instead of... Uh, you know, coming up with some practical things related to, you know, how many books you're selling or something like that. Um, they changed it so that just once you were in, you were in. And so, as far as I understand it, social justice warriors got in there, began to lower the standards of the organization, and things went to hell in a handbasket after that. Hmm. Hello, academia. <laughs> but anyway, we'll get to that another time. It's a totally new, totally new concept. But, and it's so ridiculous now that for the most part, the organization is entirely run by so-called uh, science fiction writers who, number one, don't write science fiction, and number two, have never published a novel. Most of the people who are uh, heavily involved in it have managed to qualify by virtue of uh, somehow getting three short stories published. So they get three short stories published in some marginal publication uh, like, you know, Lightspeed or, or, you know, something that most people have never heard of. Um, and then they join and then, you know, because it, it's a huge, uh, badge of, of distinction for them, you know, they feel like they're part of the club now. And so they end up getting very involved and they end up, they end up running it. And that's, and that's why you basically have, you know, you have the amateurs and the wannabes running the organization. And then this tends to, this is, same process has sort of uh, taken place in the publishing companies themselves. So you had these, uh, for the most part, almost entirely women, uh, come in and start helping for free. They, ca they came in as slush readers. And then uh, the hardest work... sorry, for those who don't know, that's the pile of unsolicited manuscripts that, you know, you kind of sift through looking for the diamond uh, in the rough, so to speak, right? Right. So, so every publisher, you know, including ours, you know, I'm, I'm the lead editor of, of Castalia House. Um, you know, we have a number of volunteers who uh, kindly take their time to go through all the submissions and then weed out most of them, just pass on the best ones to, to the editors. And so, uh, so these people work their way up over time. You know, so you used to have editors like, uh, uh, like uh, Campbell, who was a very strong editor, um, definitely had his idea about how things should be written and that sort of, uh, sort of thing. Um, and you also had strong female editors, uh, like the, the woman who, uh, edited Heinlein for Put, um, I think it was for Putnam. 
um, you know, the, all the juveniles, the classic, you know, uh, tunnel in the sky and space cadet and, and that sort of thing. And so, but reg- regardless, you had these strong editors who were uh, not apolitical, but they were mainstream. And so what happened is, is over time, those strong editors got replaced by weaker editors, most of whom were male. Um, the David Hartwells, the Gardner Dozois, the, the um, Patrick Nielsen Haydens. And those guys, because they were, they were much weaker individuals, they ended up uh, surrounding themselves with people who couldn't challenge them. Mm-hmm. And so uh, and in the case of you know, weak men, weak men usually surround themselves with women because they, they find other, other men threatening. And so now we're in a situation where you know, a ridiculous percentage of the people in the publishing industry are women. I think it's on the order of 80% women. And now uh, a lot of the, the male editors are much older. I mean, Hartwell died this year. Um, you know, Bain is dead. Um, the Tom Doherty who started Tor, you know, he's, he's in his eighties and essentially retired. Um, and so what you're seeing is that they've been replaced by these, uh, SJW oriented women who are very aggressively embracing every aspect of identity politics of, of left-wing, um, politics uh, really pushing the various, you know, gender narratives and that sort of thing. And that's why you're seeing things like, um, uh, writers like NK Jemison being elevated and, and given, you know, high profile columns in the New York times and that sort of thing. You know, and these are not even second rate writers. I mean, these are, are third and fourth rate writers at best. And so the, the rot has, uh, not only infected the, the publishing companies, it's not only, affected the magazines, but it's also affected the awards processes, the, the professional organizations. And, and, and what's funny about it is that, uh, it, it, you've basically got a rotten tree, you know, it, it looks big, it looks impressive. You know, you've got these New York companies with their offices in New York and all that sort of thing, but their sales are plunging like you would not believe. And so, uh, and then at the same time, Amazon and the world of self-publishing and indie publishing has created this situation where uh, the best sellers on Amazon are people that you've never heard of. You know, they're 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 people like B.V. Larson and Von Hepner and David Van Dyke and uh, you know that girl who wrote the the vampire novels and Hugh Howey. You know, th- these people are all selling far more books than the quote-unquote big-name science fiction authors. You know, if you, right. and you can, and you can see this if you go to, um, you know, if you go to the Amazon listings, you you'll see that almost all the top, you know, thirty writers, with the exception of J.K. Rowling and George Martin, are people that you know the average person might not necessarily recognize, whereas the names that you would have be more familiar with, the names that you think of as being the big science fiction writers, you know, like I think um, our good friend John Scalzi, I think he's like number fifty. You know, you would think that he was like top ten, based on the 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 way that the science fiction community talks about him. They never talk about B.B. Larson or Von Hapner, but those guys sell far more books than than anyone that Tor is publishing. Well, that's that's a strange thing. You know, uh, one fundamental aspect 
of storytelling has to be surprise. It has to be, there has to be a something that, that gives you goosebumps. Um, I remember reading um, years ago the, um, the Thomas Covenant series. And uh, there were like twists and turns. And the same thing was true, of course, with the Harry Potter stuff. Gives you goosebumps, keeps you alert. One of the things that drives me insane about the left is the degree to which I know what's coming. Like, I know if there's a white guy, he's going to be a bad guy. If there's a man, like, you know, that it, it's all so predictable. And that, I think, is is one of the things that is hopefully going to be the death of identity politics is not even so much that it's sort of corrupt and manipulative and, and venal, but the degree to which it's so predictable, like it's so predictable that, you know, they're going to, in, in, with the Brexit thing, they're going to exploit this this woman's terrible murder for their political end. It's, it's all extremely predictable and, you know, maybe less intelligent people like the predictability, but anybody with half a brain, uh, there's no point turning the page if you know what's going to be printed in the next page. Well, I was watching the latest episode of Game of Thrones tonight, and it was kind of funny because, you know, my, my wife at one point told me just to be quiet because I, I correctly anticipated practically everything that happened. You know, I mean the 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 whole thing with the you know good guys looking surrounded, and then you know the the reinforcements come in just at the nick of time, and you know, of course, the bad guy. Uh, who's behaved very intelligently and rationally, well, not rationally entirely, but he, he's behaved intelligently and even brilliantly at times. Shrewdly, yeah, maybe. Shrewdly, yes, that's a better way to put it. You know, of course, um, promptly, in the interest of the plot, turns into a complete idiot and, you know, doesn't doesn't withdraw his army, but just lets it get slaughtered, you know, when, when he had plenty of opportunity to go, oh, reinforcements for the other side are coming. Maybe we should withdraw. You know, and uh, it, it, the whole thing is just, it, it's so utterly predictable and it's, it's partly predictable because it is aimed at a increasingly low common denominator. Mm. You know, I mean, the, the, the Western countries are literally less intelligent than they were in the golden age of science fiction. I mean, we're talking a decline anywhere from six to 10 points on average, which is, which is massive. It's something we talk about in conservative, as you know, but it's not just that it's also because, um, SJWs always have to serve the narrative. And so they can't go too far off the reservation or they're going to be lambasted and attacked for that. So, uh, you know, SJW fiction is almost by definition boring because, it's not just a case of archetypes and tropes, you know. I mean, yes, you could say that, well, look, if, you know, you've got the poor farm boy, he's probably going to turn out to be either a magician or a prince, and then, you know, the whole coming-of-age, uh, you know, tale and that sort of thing. But but it goes beyond that. I mean, it, it goes to the level of detail where you can tell exactly what is going to happen in almost any given scene. You know, and, and that's why I, I find it very difficult to, to read that sort of fiction. I've found uh, over time, you know, I'm reading more and more uh, classic fiction. You know, I'm, I, was, I just finished reading Kokoro by uh, Natsume Soseki, and he was writing in the Meiji era, you know, in Japan. Um, I can, it, it sounds bizarre, but in some ways I can relate to the characters and what's going on in a long-gone period of Japan than I can with this ridiculous SJW stuff where um, apparently the issues in, you know, 
3500 uh, AD are going to be exactly the same as they are in 2016 New York City uh, when, when they're debating who can use what bathroom. <laughs> well, so when I was, I guess, um, my late my late teens, I went went to college and I started uh, acting and really liked it and had a good, uh, good feel for it and, and was willing to work very hard at it. And after a couple of years of English, an English literature degree, uh, I applied for the National Theatre School. And it's a crazy process to get in. They take like, there were 1,600 applicants. They take 16 people. And uh, I uh, had to submit writing samples. And I did auditions. And I had to take my favorite play and shorten it, or a play that I liked a lot, and shorten it into two minutes. And I did um, uh, The Zoo Story by Albie. And eventually got in. And I went for a while. But I remember the very first day I was there, Vox. Very first day, we go into the the head of the uh, National Theatre School. And he basically gives us one of these you know, like there's seaweed dripping from her faces, glances of arist- aristocratic contempt and says, well, you're all very white, young and bougie, uh, which I guess meant white, young and bourgeois, you know, that, that we weren't the, the, the correct mix of, of rainbow hues and, and so on. And I, that, that was sort of my first inkling as to the degree to which leftism was uh, all over the place uh, in the arts. And it became somewhat exhausting because the, the stories are so relentlessly ugly. You know, that that is, you know, and again, I don't mind darkness in stories. It has its place. And, you know, I don't even mind like looking at negative stories and so on. But there's no, di- there doesn't seem to be a lot of diversity in the stories. They're sort of relentlessly dark. The language is often quite beautiful. Um, but there is this relentless uh, ugliness and smallness and darkness and meanness and, and the general sapping of nobility and human hope. And it generally seems to be that they want to take, you know, all the unicorns and sand them down into, into really sad old dray horses. They want to take all of the nobility and capacity of the human spirit to achieve greatness, to achieve virtue, to inspire uh, the world and turn it into just smallness and meanness and give everyone a sort of third eye that is like this cold, tiny, shrinking ray eye of Sauron diminishing of human potential. And that relentless shrinking of the soul ray that I sort of experienced um, in, uh, uh, in theater school at the time was pretty rough. And then I I ended up leaving that, went into the business world for a while, quite a while, actually became an entrepreneur. And then I um, sold, was involved in the sale of the company that I co-founded and took some time off and I was writing novels, wanted to get back into that. I started off, I wrote about 30 plays, wrote a bunch of poems, but novels were sort of my, my, my favorite place to be. I got involved in the Canadian writing program and, and through that met um, a good writer, a very, very poetic writer and met uh, and got involved with an agent and so on. And I wrote this book called The God of Atheists, which I labored over night and day for like a year. Uh, and um, it, like when it went out to a reader, uh, it got like this review that came back was like, this is finally we have the great Canadian novel. Finally, we have a novel of, of passion and, and virtue and depth and humor and clarity. Like this is a guy with a PhD in literature who was reviewing it. And I was like, wow, that's it. You know, and every, every day I'd go to work and I'd wait, the phone would ring and I'd be like, OK, well, this got to be somebody with like, yes, we're going to publish and so on. And uh, my agent said, oh, I've never seen anything like this, you know. <laughs> and yet the, the reviews continually came back from the publishing houses. Beautiful writing, great writing, great characters, not interested. And that was just really like, how, how could this be? You know, I'm like reading books, stuff gets published. It's all over the, uh, all over the bookstore. It's not that great. And here, you know, here's something of great depth and power. And everyone, they recognize, yo, that's a wonderful diamond lying there uh, in, I'm just going to walk past. <laughs> it's a wonderful diamond lying there in the beach. Just going to keep walking. I remember just being like, 
Well, what don't I understand? But this is my in my eternal experience box. It's like, what is going on in the planet that I don't understand when this is the outcome of this particular process? Now, I mean, it seems to make a little bit more sense to me, but at the time, it was really bewildering. Well, we're publishing a book on Monday that is brilliant. Um, our production editor said that he thought it was the not only the best thing that we'd ever published, but was uh, had the potential to be the best thing that we publish uh, in in the near future, um, which is actually kind of remarkable when you consider the fact that we publish uh, John Wright's Awake in the Nightland, which is phenomenal. And the interesting thing about it is that it was written mostly in the 70s. Hmm. And it's written by a guy who um, I, I can't divulge his identity. He's he's. Uh, but uh, the name that he, that we're using is Owen Stanley. And this is a gentleman who knows more about science, has forgotten more about science than you, I, and 30 other people would, would know. I mean, th- this guy, yeah, he, he's done the groundwork, he's lived with the primitive tribes, you name it. And the book, it, uh, the best way I can describe it, and I think you'll appreciate this being a, a student of literature yourself, um, is if you can imagine W. Somerset Maugham meets Douglas Adams. <laughs> That's a pretty good combo. You know, I, I, the, 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 the guy sent me the book and, you know, I was, and he said, you know, I, I wrote this 40 years ago. You know, I have no idea whether, you know, he said it's, it's, uh, my friends tell me that it's great, but it's, it's totally unpublishable. And I was thinking, okay, I don't know what that means. And by the second page, I understood why there was no chance it would ever get published by uh, a conventional publisher today. And the reason is, uh, it's a novel set in Papua New Guinea, and it's all about the uh, UN mission going in in order to civilize the cannibal tribes there. And uh, let's just say that things go very, very, very wrong, um, and, and they don't improve. And you know, it, it's hilarious. I mean, the, I started laughing on the second page. And, so if and, there's no noble savage, if there's no Rousseauian noble savage, uh, in other words, if there's an accurate portrayal of primitive cultures, then it is radioactive. Like, this is kryptonite to social justice warriors, right? Oh, absolutely. And, and the, the, I mean, just to, to give you, um, you know, to give you one hint about it, um, there, there's this sort of old colonial style uh, the, the, the previous governor is an old colonial hand and, uh, you know, the, the UN is getting all excited because the, uh, the tribesmen have, have really gotten enthusiastic about these toy cars that, that they're selling, that, that they have. And, and the, the uh, you know, all the adult tribesmen are, are, are buying them and they have no idea what they're doing with them, but they're just, you know, Hey, look, you know, they're, they're, they finally value some of the stuff that we're offering them. And the old colonial hand, you know, he says, um, knowing that the, knowing that the tribesmen, um, have an an unerring ability to, uh, put one and one together and come up with 17, uh, he he decides to go and investigate, you know, what they're doing with the cars. And, and there's this character in the book who is, he's just absolutely hilarious because he's the tribal philosopher. And so Throughout the book, he's trying to interpret uh, all these new Western things and fit them into the tribe's uh, mythology and and their way of seeing things. And so, um, 
this philosopher, uh, he had a vision and realized that um, the toy cars were actually seeds. And that if they planted them... <laughs> I can see that. Yeah, I mean, this is just one little thing in passing. But, you know, the entire book is like that. And, and um, it's fantastic. But, you know, that kind of book... You know, we can publish that because we're a right-wing, blue science fiction, you know, anti-PC uh, independent publisher. But, you know, is Macmillan going to publish that? Is is HarperCollins going to publish that? They would rather burn the author at the stake. Well, and of course, if, if it gets – if this kind of book were to get out to – the mainstream reviewers, which of course are necessary to drive a lot of book sales, the mainstream reviewers would recoil with horror because you, you you portray the noble savage in order to bludgeon the values of Western civilization. They don't care about the noble savage at all. They, they know it's not true. All these people in air-conditioned offices riding their Ubers around talking about the value of sleeping in dirt in the jungle is ridiculous. But they like to elevate the noble savage to bludgeon the values of Western civilization. And if there's no noble savage, if, if, if the primitive cultures are portrayed as uh, primitive, then the reviewers will be absolutely appalled, horrified, will try to get people fired, will call it racist, colonialist, imperialistic, the usual garbage that comes out when people are confronted by basic facts of reality about human cultures and civilizations. So what could, even if they could sell a billion copies, uh, each individual careers and lives and reputations and entire social circles would be detonated. Oh, exactly. And, and the, the thing about this particular book, uh, it's called The Missionaries. Um, and it's by Owen Stanley. And the, the particular thing about this book is that as, you know, the, the, the primitives, you know, their way of life is without question savage. I mean, just brutal beyond belief. But they actually come out of it pretty good compared to the SJWs in the UN. <laughs> because, you know, I mean, that, that's what... At least they're this, honest about oh, it. But, but that's what renders this book so completely publish, uh, unpublishable uh, in the mainstream because the, the values of the gatekeepers in the mainstream publishing industry are precisely the values that are being expressed by not so much the bad guys as, as the, you know, helpless... Uh, incompletely over their head uh, would be self-identified heroes of the book who are, are just, you know, so fundamentally unable to deal with the real world as they find it. You know, at, at one point um, I was talking to the cover artist and he, he you know, he, like usually reads a little bit of the book, just enough to, you know, get the cover right. And he said, I got to tell you, I, I read the, I couldn't put it down. I read the whole thing. He said, uh, he got me at the point where, uh, the the head of the mission uh, is he recoils at the the terrible uh, attitudes you know racialist attitudes being expressed by the old colonials and 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 thinks um, he had he had never actually heard these views before although he had read about them in the Journal of Race Relations <laughs> you know so it, I mean right. it, it's just um, it, it is possibly you know in modern terms. Given what the status quo is now, given what the power structures are now, I mean, this is like an insanely subversive work. I mean, this is this is what the work, this is what they they want their works to be. Except they can't be subversive anymore because they've taken over the institutions. And so, you know, one of the things that you talked to me uh, about once is, you know, how do we how do we address this? 
And it's very clear, you know, there is no saving these institutions. They need to be burned to the ground, hollowed out, you know, and we need to, you know, declare no quarter and take no prisoners. We need to build new institutions, better institutions, and most importantly, we need to fortify them and keep out the SJWs so they don't do the same damn thing all over again. Oh, yeah, no, I hear you. And this is this is the strange thing, Vox, about this crazy Wild West modern new media kind of life is that uh, I was very excited about the potential of um, the books I've written, I think seven or eight novels over the time. I was very excited about the possibility of being published and uh, going to bookstores and signing things and giving speeches and that kind of stuff. And I thought, ooh, that, that's going to be great because that traditional jigsaw puzzle is how you assembled a career back in the day. Right. Now in Canada, uh, if I remember rightly, a bestseller is 5,000 copies. 5,000 copies. Man, you're moving a lot of tree. You're pumping out a lot of wood chip under the general population. And uh, having been blocked from that by, I would assume, a bunch of lefties who recognize the quality of the writing and found the content or the themes all the more dangerous because of the quality of the writing. You know, if it's crappy writing, you don't care about the themes. But if it's great writing and themes that you find offensive, that's a not good combination. So having been blocked from that avenue of getting my work out to the public, well, I ended up uh, taking the route that I've taken, you know, talking and, and uh, podcasting and videos. And, and uh, now, uh, instead of uh, having a bestseller, which is 5,000 books, over 100,000 of my books are downloaded every single month. 100,000 every single month and more. And this is the weird thing where you say, oh, you know, I'm blocked this way. Um, I, I've mentioned this story before, but there's this old story about um, a guy, oh, maybe you know it, a, a guy who's fired from being a butler because he doesn't know how to read and write. It's a guy, he's been his butler forever, but didn't know how. And so the guy ends up, he's really sad. He walks down the street and he, he wants a, sm a smoke, but he can't find a smoke shop. So he ends up opening a smoke shop and then he ends up opening more and more and more. And eventually he's a really rich guy and he goes to his uh, accountant finally and his accountant says, I need you to read this. And the guy says, well, I actually still can't read and write. He's like, wow, you've become... This rich, famous entrepreneur, when you don't even know how to read and write, imagine how amazing you'd have been if you did know how to read and write. Imagine where you'd be. And he said, I know exactly where I'd be. I'd be a butler to that guy who fired me at the beginning. So right. there's this weird thing where we have this, I don't know if it's a case-selected impulse to look at barriers as obstacles. But if you have the will and you have the wherewithal and you have the passion and the drive and the commitment uh, to, to do good in the world, because art, I think, is, is one of the great ways in which good can be done in the world – the obstacles which you think are kind of blocking you turn out to be this giant catapult that leaps you to a place that is unforeseen. And so, you know, oh, 5,000 books, well, that'd be fantastic, you know, or maybe a movie which comes and goes. And now, you know, we're cooking at over 200 million downloads, 100,000 books a month because I was blocked. And that's something that I still shake my head from time to time and just realize just what an amazing world it is that we live in now with the potential to communicate directly to people. Well, one of the things that I, I said, um, it was kind of funny, you know, I was, uh, the SFWA board voted to expel me a couple of years ago. It was kind of a charade, but, you know, we'll just uh, take it at face value for now. And they were upset, though, uh, two years later when uh, the Rabid Puppies and I ended up taking over the, the Hugo Awards. Now, if you, sorry, just because yeah, I want people to understand, if you can break that story out a little bit for people, I'd appreciate it. Okay, it's pretty simple. Um, Larry Correa is a very popular uh, writer of, um, 
you know, gun porn, urban fantasy, et cetera, um, for Bain Books. And uh, he's quite good. And he was getting mocked by uh, some SJWs, and they were you know, basically saying, you know, you're not a real writer, you're not a good writer, um, you don't have any awards. You know, yes, you sell a lot of books, but you, have, you, know, you don't have any awards. And so uh, he said, look, it's, it, it's, that's ridiculous. It's just a popularity contest. It's a, it's a small cop popularity contest among a small incestuous group of, of left-wingers. And they said, oh, that's not true. So he said, oh, yeah, and, and declared his sad puppies campaign. And he picked a couple, you know, just uh, he, a couple stories that he liked. And one of them was one of mine, a, a, a novelette called Opera Vida Eterna. Um, and it got nominated for the Hugo. And this, of course, you know, vastly offended the, the SJWs because, I mean, here they've, you know, they have indicated their disapproval. I'm supposed to go away. You know, and, and here suddenly I've, I've got a, a, you know, a Hugo nomination. So um, they duly, you know, made sure that I didn't win it, which was fine. But uh, the, the, the mistake that they made was that they accused me of having gamed the award system so that I could get this one nomination for a novelette. Be because, and I, I can't remember who said this, Vox, social justice warriors always project. Who was it? That wise young man who said that somewhere. Social justice, that's you actually. But probably, of course, probably, right, probably, you probably, gamed probably the system. It's too. our job to game the system. What do you do in gaming it? Well, right. And, and I mean, the, the, it, to me, it still, it still boggles my mind. I mean, I know they project. I literally wrote the law. And yet, I still can't believe sometimes that they think I give a damn about, you know, this sort of thing. Um, so anyhow, but, but one thing I do, do give a damn about is I'm a game designer and I'm a good one. You know, I'm not a great one, but I'm a good one. And so to have somebody say that I gamed a system in order to, uh, get one nomination in a minor category and lose, yeah, that was like directly offensive to me. So I, I thought, well, if they think I gamed it, the best way for me to demonstrate that I didn't game it is to actually game it. You know, once they see what me gaming it looks like, then my innocence will be obvious. And so anyhow, I looked at the, the rules, I figured out how to do it, um, and we ended up taking something like 57 of the 81 nominations. And of course, this, you know, this was you know, the world was coming to an end. There were stories in National Public Radio, the New Zealand Herald. The Guardian was running articles about, you know, once a week, um, without ever talking to me, of course. You no, know, it's just... You know, we, we want to cloud it with facts. You know, George George R. R. Martin, I know you're busy not writing your, your next book, but could you talk to us again about what Vox is doing? I mean... Seriously, they talk to him about what I'm doing more than they talk to me. Um, you know, so anyhow, uh, so then they, they, they were upset. They ended up having, giving out no awards in five of the categories. You know, it was, it was terrible, whatever. And, and then they all decided that they're going to stop me. And so they, have, they, they, they ran a year-long campaign um, to, to stop me. And, and that was, you know, the, the first... Uh, or that first one was kind of an alliance between me and some others. Um, but they kind of, the, the sad puppies. But the behavior of the SJWs in science fiction was so obnoxious that they ended up um, 
driving a lot of the sad puppies into my rabid puppies camp. And so, uh, so after all this, you know, they, they passed uh, some rules changes that, that will take effect the following year. Um, I mean, they pulled out all the stops. They, they exhibited mass disapproval in dozens of media stories. They uh, called us every name in the book. They, um, you know, you name it, they did it. And the end result of their big campaign to demonstrate how lacking in support I was was that we ended up taking 69 of the nominations this year. <laughs> Excellent. They're 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 good at intimidation, but they're very bad at combat. That they're, they're good at scaring people, but they're very bad at actually showing up to to the conflict in in a successful kind of way. And this is the other thing too is that, I mean, I I I can't believe I'm saying this kind of stuff, Max, but it's like right wing culture is to me the only subversive culture that's going on in the world at the moment. And particularly right. alt-right culture. But but the left has just become this giant boring monolith. Ooh, you're so edgy, you know. Ooh, you know? But but the, it's the right-wing culture that to me is conservative culture that to me is the most subversive to the dominant order. Because, you know, there's been this uh, meet the boss, uh, the new boss, same as the old boss stuff going on with the left where they felt all, you know, proud and chest thumpy to have taken over these institutions. But now they've just become the same boring power mongers, people with too much time on their hands, all status uh, oriented and all virtue signaling empty bullshit and now the, the people who are challenging that narrative are the people who are the real subversives and that's really tough for the left because the left do pride themselves on their edginess and uh, to me writing another horrible story about horrible people doing horrible things sorry <laughs> orange is the new black you're just not that edgy uh, anymore uh, the real edginess to me is occurring um when basic facts of reality are being reasserted like papua new guinea um, savages and and how they behave uh, like the stuff that ann coulter writes about in terms of immigration like the stuff that the alt-right is talking about in terms of race realism that is the real subversive now i don't know that it's made it much to art as you point out this guy was writing uh, uh owen was writing in the 70s and he's kind of kept this dragged this this literary body behind him for quite some time. It's like a mattress girl penance. But the real subversiveness to me is coming out not of the left these days. Very, very boring, very predictable, very um, cliched. And and to me, anybody who can stand cliches is not an artist. To me, the whole point of art is to dig so deep into your original and lived experience that cliches become impossible. That's fully embodied by the left. Who does it, All they do is animate these zombie cliches and think that they're being edgy. Well, the other thing that's important to keep in mind is that we're the ones who are having fun. You know, <laughs> the the it, it's always funny when uh, they try to say. You know, frequently you, you you'll probably see it on Twitter that you'll see people saying that you know, well, you're a bad person, and you know, my response is always, "What part of Supreme Dark Lord do you not understand?" You know, I, I mean. The, it, it, and they they don't really know what to do when they're like, "Well, but you're evil." I'm like, "Well." Yes, I'm the supreme dark lord of the evil legion of evil. We are far more evil than you understand in your worst nightmares. And yeah, you know, there, there's, I mean, practically every week there's somebody writing a comment on, there's this guy, I don't know who it is, but he writes these like little vignettes about, you know, the the tortures that are being performed in my dark dungeons and all this sort of and. and they're always totally over the top and they're always topical and they're always funny, you know? I mean, and even people who are on the other side, people who are absolutely directly opposed to me, 
you know, they'll write to me and say, okay, I hate you and everything you do, but that was pretty damn funny. And, and you know, after uh, the nomination, after the Hugo nominations this year, um, I put out a press release and I sent it to the Wall Street Journal, to New York Times, all the, all the people that had written about the Hugo Awards the year before. And <laughs> the whole thing was written in character as the Supreme Dark Lord. And, you know, basically uh, talking about how, um, you know, we were, uh, uh, we were taking a kindler, gentler approach this year. Um, and that uh, instead of um, flaying people and rolling them in salt, uh, we were only going to flay them. And, uh, and then talking about how um, we, we were, I was hurt that we were accused of homophobia. And um, so that's why I was pleased that we were able to help uh, Chuck Tingle's Space Raptor butt invasion. Um, the first, the first erotic dino, the, the first erotic gay dino porn uh, story to win a, a Hugo Award. Um, you know, and and uh, we were proud to to demonstrate our complete lack of uh, of homophobia. In fact, we argued that if anyone didn't give, if it didn't win the award, that would prove how homophobic science fiction was. You know, and so they, they couldn't even they couldn't even talk about it. They were so upset, you know, and, and so that subversion that you're talking about that that mocking of those in the positions of power and that sort of thing is definitely uh, in and of the alt right at this time. Well, yeah, professional organizations, uh, you've always had a bit of a trouble with. It seems to me that they lay kibble to just sort of send you in the wrong direction. You know, like, because, you know, a, a communicator, a writer, an artist should be concerned with the marketplace, should be concerned with how many thoughts, visions, ideas, and paradoxes you can jam into people's brains voluntarily. That, that's, your, that's your measure. And it seems to me that whenever you're doing a really great job of, you know, slapping people on the face with the wet fish of curiosity that, and waking them up, that the powers that be, and these days tends to be the social justice warriors, they kind of freak out. Oh, my God, he's talking directly to the people. He's waking them up, whatever. And then what they do is they say, well, what you're doing is, is base and ignoble and common, you know, as they talked about with this uh, other writer. And so what they do is they say, well, what you really need is our approval, which is refined and elevated and very, very sophisticated, don't you know? And so they'll put these pellets, these little pellets called uh, awards, and they're designed to lead you away from the market into the approval of people who are bad at the market. That's almost because well, if you're good at the market, you're out there facing the market, not doing all this political machinations behind the scenes. And so it's like they're just trying to draw you away. And I, I've always been really suspicious about these these awards, these 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 things. Like people say to me, "Oh, Steph, you know, you should go become a professor of philosophy or something like that." It's like, are you kidding me? So what? I mean, I'm 49 years old, so you're saying what I should do is spend the remainder of my life attempting to influence a couple of hundred people who are going to pass through my graduate school program as opposed to millions of people around the world with what I'm doing now. How could that possibly be a step up? And being able to bring things to the market and avoid the sort of kibble lure off the cliff uh, of infinite approval. And it's, trying to, it's a form of paralysis. They're trying to paralyze you by having you focus on awards rather than connecting with your readers and the audience. And I think many a great soul has been taken down by being led in that direction towards the approval of people who are only offering you approval if you don't do the right thing anymore. Well, if you look at the numbers, I mean, it's, it's really kind of striking. Um, you can see it on Amazon. You know, you, you look up the... Uh, books that won the awards. It doesn't matter which award, you know, the, the big, um, 
you know, the, the big literary awards or the science fiction awards, whatever, for the most part, what you'll see is that the recent winners, like in the last, I don't know, 15 years, most of them have Amazon sales ranks that are at least one order of magnitude uh, lower than uh, books that were winning awards 30 years ago. You know, 40, 30, 40 years ago, you had books like uh, Frank Herbert's Dune. You had books like Orson Scott Card's um, Ender's Game. You know, they were selling very well and they were winning awards because they were memorable books and they were good books. You know, now they either give out awards to books that nobody's ever read, you know, like, you know, Joe Walton's among others is just this incestuous, uh, ode to books that she liked when she was a kid. I mean, the whole thing is entirely, um, self referential, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, it, it's of no appeal to anyone who doesn't like exactly the same books that she did as a kid. Um, how is this, so, you know, this is not only something that is not going to be read in the future. It's something that's not read in the present. And, um, and so I, I think that, uh, but at the same time, there's this tremendous opportunity that is, is now being presented to the, to the alt-right in the culture wars, especially in the area of, of book publishing, because, the Amazon has completely destroyed the power of the gatekeepers. Mm. Um, and then compounding that is the fact that the gatekeepers made some, some very serious blunders in the last year. And the percentage of sales that they provide now, both ebooks and print, have dropped by about 50% in the last uh, 14 months. Wow. Really? And that, that big? Yeah, if you look at, there's a, a report called Author Earnings that's done by Hugh Howey. And he's, he was one of the first big Amazon successes. And uh, he does this fantastic uh, job of data analysis with a, with a partner of his. And they go through and they basically break down something like the top 200,000 selling authors on Amazon. So they cover practically everybody that, and everybody that matters. And it's really remarkable because you can see from the charts that they do uh, that the share of the the big fives, um, the, the big five share of revenue, as well as uh, units sold, have dropped precipitously. I mean, dropped by more than fifty percent, and, and that's and that's in the past, you know, just a little bit more than a year. And and I think what happened is that Amazon allow. You know, remember that battle between Amazon and Hatchet. Mm. Um, Amazon was actually trying to save the major publishers from themselves. They knew what they knew what price points would sell, and of course, the the major publishers were overly concerned about protecting their print sales versus their ebook sales, and so they wanted to keep their ebook sales high. And so Amazon finally just gave up and said, "Okay, fine, we're not going to discount your books for you. You just price them however you want." And what they've done, you know, you know your economics. Um, they price their books way too high, both the ebooks and the print books. And but here's where it gets really interesting, and this is something that you know you and I should talk about with regards to your books, um, because I just signed four authors to book contracts in the past three days. And what's interesting about them is that these are authors that we, as a small independent publisher, have no business normally being able to publish because these guys sell 
a truckload of books on Amazon. Hmm. Ebooks. Now, what's happened is that the um, the uh, distribution channel, the print distribution channel, is collapsing. You know, the retail sales, Barnes and Noble. Who knows how much longer they'll even be around? I, I expect them to go out of business within eighteen months, and so, or you know, do a, a bankruptcy thing. And so, what's happened is that instead of buying print books um, at the bookstores, people are buying print books on Amazon. Okay, but uh, the print guys, I mean, on Amazon, nobody knows you're a dog. <laughs> you know, on Amazon, nobody knows that you're a little publisher. And here's where it gets really interesting is that the big publishers have a very limited capacity for producing print books, especially hardcovers. They have a limited number of slots per year. So even fairly successful authors, even authors like Orson Scott Card, they're not guaranteed a hardcover. And, but because of the new way that technology has come around, um, you know, com- publishers like ours, we can produce hardcovers as easily as we can produce paperbacks, and we can get them distributed through the same channels that they do, but, and we can even do higher quality because we don't accept returns. You know, we, we do, the reason they do dust covers, you, I don't know if you knew this, but the reason that they stick to doing dust covers rather than that nice case-bound stuff is because they want to make it easy for the bookstores to return the books to them. So when the bookstore takes off the dust cover and sends it back to them, you know, they can ship it back more cheaply and then they just throw the book away. But you know, because we're small and we don't accept uh, returns, we do these nice, beautiful, case-bound things that look like you know, it's the same quality as those big you know, expensive textbooks. Um, so what's interesting is that we're now seeing... Um, a opportunity in the market where we are uh, able to do hardcovers and paperbacks that the big guys can't do. They can't. They, you know, we can come out with uh, you know twelve hardcovers in a month. They can't do that because they can't get that into the into the channel. And so I think that we're about to see a, a shakeup in the publishing industry of the sort that we haven't seen since Amazon first came onto the scene. And lordy, lordy, isn't that not somewhat slightly overdue? Because I think people don't understand, uh, that's in an arrogant way of putting it, but I'm going to stick with it anyway. People don't understand the degree to which um, political narratives, the social justice warrior leftist narrative, not only is it an immense overhead, in other words, you're paying a bunch of people who aren't focused on the market, but are focusing on uh, pushing a particular political agenda. Not only is that excessive overhead, which is going to cut into your profits, but they are willing to burn your audience to the ground to promote their narrative. The narrative is the ide fix. It's, you know, asking the social justice warriors to stop pushing the narrative is like uh, asking an OCD guy to stop washing his hands. And he may interrupt it very briefly, but he's going to write. It's, it's a compulsion. It's an obsessive compulsion. And businesses, uh, and again, to, to go back to Mike Sonovich's excellent tweets, you know, he, he points out that, uh, you know, Apple and, and Twitter and so on, a lot of them are kind of pushing this political agenda. Uh, and right. that means that they can't really do great business because they've got this distraction that this, this let's try and manipulate people into pursuing what we consider to be the good rather than just delivering great products or great stories or, or great services. That is catastrophic. 
you know, there's investors out there who, who say, ah, social justice warriors hit the board. I'm now shorting the stock because it's only right. a matter of time until it all uh, blows up. And that the social justice warriors allowing them to take control of foundational decisions in your organization, man, that the countdown clock is set from there. Well, I can give you two examples, you know, that are relevant just to things that happen today. Um, one of those authors that we signed to a contract, we, we just signed uh, two of his books today. Um, his name is Nick Cole. And he was dropped by HarperCollins, or he wasn't dropped. Um, his book was canceled by HarperCollins because an editor was so offended by a small plot point in his science fiction novel wherein uh, the aliens thought less of the humans because of abortion. You know, they, they were an alien race that was, uh, you know, very fixated on their young and they couldn't believe that humans aborted their young. And what a great way to explore the issue. It's great. Yeah, and, 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 but, but the bizarre thing was, this wasn't even a major plot point. Mm. You know, th this was like just one of the things fleshing out the differences between the races, you know. And the SJW editor at, the, at HarperCollins was so offended by this and so angered by this that they canceled the book. You know, and his his books sell well. I mean, he he was you know I, he wasn't one of their their top authors, but he was definitely one of their you know up and coming authors. And so it was interesting because you know we on the blog uh, you know we kind of supported him a bit, um, and you know we we there was no way it didn't make any sense for he was, he sells plenty of ebooks on his own. He he self published it, but you know we we talked about it, and I said, hey, you know why don't you let us why don't you let us handle your print? You know, you keep your ebook, we'll do the, the hardcover, we'll do the paperback. And he said, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, and so because they cut him, uh, you, you know, over a, a minor political point that, that the editor didn't like, you know, now uh, we've got him and we've got, you know, several of his books. And we've also signed, we actually signed a third book that we're publishing the whole shebang, you know, the, the ebook the, the hardcover and the paperback. Um, the other issue that happened today or, or recently was uh, someone at Stanford came out and was demanding, uh, wanted to know why games could not also include socially beneficial messages um, inside them. So, you know, we're supposed to, you know, in the middle of, you know, Doom 2016, um, we're supposed to stop and get a message about recycling or, you know, um, after you've you literally ripped an alien in half and then blown ten of them to shreds and and shot the head off another one, uh, you know, then apparently you should sit down and get a lecture on on not raping uh, college girls or gun control or gun control. Yeah, better yet. So you know, I mean, I mean, the the thing is, is that nothing's going to stop them, and that's why all we need to do to win is show up. All we need well, to economics do economics are going to stop them. Isn't it? I mean, the, 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 these these companies tend to perform relatively badly over the long run, right? Yeah, over time. But the thing is, is that they've got a lot of because they took over fairly, you know, reasonably solid structures. Um, it takes a while to run them down. Mm. You know, I mean, for example, you look at Tor Books. Okay, um, Doherty is out of the picture. Uh, Hartwell's dead. Um, uh, Patrick Nielsen Hayden is a Stalinist lunatic um, 
who who hasn't you know his his big successful signing um, is John Scalzi. He handed him three point four million dollars, and Scalzi promptly got writer's block. Uh, didn't publish a book, you know, isn't publishing a book this year, and we'll see if he publishes one next year. You know, so I, I, frankly, sorry to interrupt, Vox. I can see three point four million dollars staring down at you as a little bit of performance anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> that's that that's public love making on the jumbotron so anyway go on exactly and so but but the point is is that if you if you tor books is the biggest publisher in science fiction and fantasy right um now think about all the big science fiction and fantasy um franchises that have come out in the past 15 years harry potter hunger games um you know, a bunch of other, you know, YA-related things. What's the one thing all of them have in common? Absolutely none of them were published by Tor Books, the biggest publisher in science fiction and fantasy. That's because, you know, the stuff that they're looking to do is all SJW-oriented, and that's why they're going downhill rapidly. You know, our production editor, in fact, he just commented today, um, you know, he's a Gene Wolfe fan. They published Gene Wolfe. And he noticed that they have changed the quality of the paper and the margins. Uh, they've shrunk the margins so they can use less paper because, you know, they're, obviously they're trying to cut their costs. Now, but they do have an advantage is because they have the rights to publish the, the, the Frank Herbert books from Dune. They have the rights to publish the Orson Scott Card stuff. You know, so they, they have an ability to... Basically, they're supporting their SJW efforts on the basic on the basis of work that was done on the past. And uh, it's like all the lefts; they just pillage the past and pretend they're contributing to the present. Precisely, but but that's also what allows them to stick around longer than we would normally think they could. But you know that doesn't matter. I mean, what what is exciting to me is that we have the ability to uh, now we have the ability to create and build anew. Um, just. Two weeks, three weeks ago, um, you know, we published a book called Brings the Lightning by a uh, former South African Defense Forces uh, soldier named Peter Grant. Um, very interesting guy. He was a, a soldier and then he became a prison chaplain. Um, so he's kind of <laughs> spanned the gamut of human experience. Um, but what was uh, really interesting about it is that he wanted to write a Western but you can't publish a Western anymore because the gatekeepers and the mainstream publishing have declared the Western to be a dead genre. You know, so they don't publish them anymore. So There's he, a lot know, of white males in Westerns, just for right, those who don't know. Right, exactly. So he, he, he called me up and said, hey, you know, um, you know Vox, I'm, I'm really interested in writing a Western. And, and I said, uh, I'm a big Louis L'Amour fan. Um, send me what you got. And I have to say, Give me some of that was, good Zane Gray action, right? <laughs> right. Well, I have to say, I was impressed because he was the first guy, I think, to out gun porn Larry Correa. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I said I, at one point, I said, um, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be critical. You know, I mean, you know, I'm pro gun and all that sort of thing. But you know, do you think maybe five pages on? on how best to like oil your your cult your navy you know and everything is like absolutely historical historically precise right down to the distinction between the the cult that was used by the army at the time and the cult that was used by the navy at the time you know and 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 so it's it's fantastic i mean it's 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 um 
uh, you know, it's about uh, a Confederate Civil War veteran who uh, goes home and realizes that there's there's no place for him at home anymore because most of the where he was from it was mostly pro union, and um, and his sister you know is going to marry a union guy and take over the farm and so he just you know realizes there's no there's no place for me here, and so he goes west and. You know, there's all sorts of stuff that that I didn't know about the historical West because you know Louis Lamore covered some things, but he didn't really do the the post um, the Civil War stuff much. And you know, it's really fascinating learning about the way that um, the Union, uh, you know, uh, pro-Union people used to bushwhack the Confederate veterans going home um, after the war because they they knew they could get away with it. And so there's this um, there's this whole sort of uh, tension to it that that I wasn't used to reading in the in some of the the Lou Lamar. It was a little bit more like Zane Gray in that way, um, but you know, it, it's 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 heroic. It's uh, a, a white man um, learning to to survive the the um, the challenges of the West and those terrible, scary Indians and the um, and and triumphing. Uh, you know, through his own wits and through his own courage, and you know, it, and then it's of course, like I said, full of of guns. I mean, again, there's no way that that brings the lightning was ever going to get published by any mainstream publisher because you know, not only is it a moribund genre as far as they're concerned, but there's guns in it, there's heroism, there's love. And there's there's uh, pers- you know perseverance, all stuff that they absolutely hate, and so, um, it, but but you know now, it doesn't matter that they hate it. You know it, it's it's out. It's not only out, um, but it's selling very well. You know the hardcover just came out. The paperback's going to be out in two days, um, and it, you know we don't need to concern ourselves with what the gatekeepers think, what the reviewers think. Well, this is this is a strange thing, uh, and I'm I'm adjusting to this uh, as I sort of peruse what what's going on online these days, Fox. But it's a strange thing now, and this is probably old news to you, but not to me. Which is the degree to which, and it's so recent, it's it's blowing my mind. Social justice warrior attacks used to be something that people really dreaded, really feared. And you, know, you talk about this in your book. Because it reveals as much about your supposed friends and allies sometimes as it does about everything else. Right. But I don't know what's happened. If I had to put a time frame, it seems to be in the last six to eight months. Maybe it coincided with not just the rise of Donald Trump, but the obviously overwhelming success of Donald Trump relative to expectations. But now being shot at in the past meant you were a bad guy. You know, the cops were shooting at you. You were a bad guy. Now it's like a badge of honor. Social justice warriors are attacking me. And everyone's like, good for you. That means they're only shooting you because you're over the target kind of thing. That's just been weird inversal. We're now to be attacked uh, by, by sort of mainstream media. By It's now viewed as a sort of necessary badge of honor. It's like a hazing ritual to get to the next level. It's the boss fight, you know, that uh, doesn't end the game, but at least gets you to the next level. That is a remarkable reversal. And the degree to which that not only has defanged the monster, but has rendered the monster the opposite of what it intends, right? They intend to get conformity by attacking you and isolating you and all that. But now 
this is how people meet each other. This is how people get their tribe, their clan, their friends, their allies. The attack draws people in to circle the wagons, to defend, to protect, to fight back. I'm telling you, like, I mean, you know, a student of history, I should know, right? The pendulum swings, but man, it has swung fast over the last half, half year or a little, a little bit more. Well, it's, it's really heartening. You know, for me, it was, I mean, I didn't care about being an SFWA. I didn't, I didn't have anything to do with the social stuff and wasn't involved in it. But for me, it was really significant. Excuse me. It was really significant when, um, I contacted John Wright. We had just started Castalia House. You know, we originally started it to publish my books. Um, but then, you know, we started thinking, well, we should really publish some other folk stuff too. So I, I really like John Wright's books. <coughs> Excuse me. And I, I called him up and he was kind of like, who are you? And you're calling from where? And, you know, I have no idea who you are. And then I, I gave him a little more background and I said, wait a minute, are, are you the guy who was uh, kicked out of SFWA? I said, yeah, that's me. He said, I will happily work with you. What do you want? What, what, can, what, can, what can I do for you? you know, and, and now he's our, our most significant writer. And you know, in the same way, you know, Chernovich has been on here. Um, you know, Chernovich is like my brother. I mean, um, he's, he, he, I, I go to him for advice. Um, and we're actually, you know, Castellia is publishing his new book on Trump, um, which is going to be coming out soon. And, uh, you know, and he really had a major effect on how I approached, um, the different projects that we're doing. Cause he has this, he has this, you know, very, as you know, upbeat, aggressive, um, entrepreneurial spirit. Um, and he really helped me address some of the, you know, sort of, uh, bourgeois upper middle class hangups that I had that were getting in my way. And yeah, Sunovich, just for those who don't know, he doesn't have balls. He has portable bean bags. Uh, I assume he just <laughs> never needs a place to sit. So uh, that's just my particular take. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's just funny. He, he's just so energetic all the time. It, it, it feels like, you know, when you have dinner with him or something afterwards, you feel like you're at a Tony Robbins seminar or something. You're like, <laughs> you know, I'm going to do Contact this, this, this and that. from testosterone. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but you know, by the same token, um, you know, Roosh just came out with a new book. I don't know if you have uh, come across it yet, but um, it's called "Free Speech Isn't Free," and it's not what you would expect from the guy who wrote "Bang" and "60 Lays" and "30 Days" or whatever. <laughs> whatever. Um, I mean, he's really moved beyond the pickup artistry. And but what, what, what's astonishing about the book, um, aside from the fact that you know, it's like, oh my gosh, Roosh is actually sounding wise here. But, um, but what was really astonishing about it was that he chronicles in very, very close detail the extreme extent that the SJWs in the media and in politics went to try to destroy him. I mean, here's a guy, he just called a meetup of, of 40 people. And the Canadian media and, and the governor of Toronto and members of parliament were angrily denouncing him, you know, the um, English newspapers and German newspapers were sending camera crews to his parents' home. I mean, it, it, I mean, it was, it was the worst case of unjustified media overkill I've ever seen or heard of. And, um, you know, 
and and some people were telling me, you know, okay, look, you know, I mean, you're an evangelical Christian. Um, you know, he's a sort of notoriously hedonistic pagan, et cetera, et cetera. But, uh, you know, how can you support him? And, and, and a lot of people were trying to drive a wedge um, in between the two of us because they wanted him isolated. You know, they, they, they didn't want him being supported and stuff. So, you know, I just looked at it and said, okay, you know, uh, he's my guy. They're attacking him. And, and you know, y- you, you rally to the colors. And, and it's not just me, but it's the 537 vile faceless minions. It's the dread ilk. You know, it's the whole social media army. Um, you know, and then, because now it's the SJWs have learned that, you know, if you mess with one of us, we're all coming after you. And, and they, you know, I mean, it's kind of funny. I'm not, I, I very much doubt that, that Cernovich has any idea what Skaltzy has written. Like, I don't think he know, has ever read a single word that Skaltzy's written. But, you know, he pounds on him. I mean, he pounds on him so mercilessly that I, I sometimes feel bad for Skaltzy, you know. I mean, I'm supposed to be the, the main target. But, um you know, and then and then you've got you've got Milo, um, and then there's a few others as well, and 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 the SJWs, um, I think they're beginning to realize that their whole, um, you know, uh, divide and conquer, isolate and discredit and disemploy and all that sort of thing. I think they're beginning to realize that, you know, we figured that out. You know, we we have uh, successfully not only come up with a defensive strategy. But we're counterattacking, and um, you know that's why you're seeing. I mean, the the SJW list that one of my readers uh, uh, put up after I'd suggested the idea. I mean, it's getting, it's it's got hits that are in the millions now. It's only been around for like a month, um, and so I I think that what you're talking about is just the beginning of a groundswell. That is going to take the pendulum back, and it's going to and it's going to swing the pendulum back very hard. But I think that we need to continue to build on that because art is part of is is an aspect of culture, and culture underlies politics. Culture drives politics, and that's the problem that the political right has never understood. They've focused on the politics, and they've left the the culture to. You know, essentially, they've they've abandoned it to to dry up and die. Yes, people get their emotional reactions to particular political um, pro- proposals based upon you know the endless waves of emotional programming that art is capable of, and right. uh, certainly you know it's um, in the absence of of philosophy, uh, which of course you know you need art to even build up a respect for philosophy. In the absence of philosophy, people make their decisions emotionally, and what better way is there? to program people's emotions to a particular reaction than to um, give them endless scenarios of moral goodness and moral badness and punishment and reward and put all the pretty people in the social justice warrior row and all the evil smokers with sallow skin and red eyes in the, you know, the other row. You program people emotionally, and that's what art is fantastic at doing. Uh, because art is more than just the books that you read. Art uh, is involved in religion. Art is involved in nationalism. Art is involved in all in-group preferences. And um, it is much more than, you know, the, the TV and, and the books and so on that people read. It is the foundational way by which people navigate the world and make 
decisions. And um, I, don't, I think it was Gavin McInnes I saw on a TV show. Uh, a study came out recently that pointed out that women who stay home to, to raise uh, families and, and be house homemakers and so on, a very noble profession, if not the most noble profession in my opinion. But uh, a study came out that, that showed that these women were far happier than women who went out to work, like crazy margins, like it was more than 50% of the women who stayed home said their lives were very satisfying. And it was like one seventh of the women who went out to work. And so Gavin right. McInnes was, was pointing out this basic fact. This woman was sort of shredding him about his, his and he's like, but there's the fact that statistically you're much more likely to be happy if you stay home. And, oh, you know, you can see the audience is like, well, why are they reacting in this kind of way? They're reacting in this kind of way because of decades of programming of, you know, the career woman being the good person and the stay-at-home mom being neurotic or a frustrated lesbian or like whatever it's going to be, you know, and, and they're reacting in an emotional way to facts and erasing, blowing away the facts because of their programmed emotional reactions. And yeah, I mean, definitely the, the, the high ground of arts needs to be taken back from the left. And uh, I think that because the left is, is so monomaniacal and OCD on their political message, people escape tyranny eventually, I think, through boredom, particularly artistic tyranny. The very right. argument uh, that used to be very common in art, the argument that the naive idealist was going to be squashed by reality and the grizzled veteran who would try to impart his wisdom to the naive idealist was racing against the clock. The naive, naive idealist would be doing stupid things, putting himself in danger, and the grizzled man eventually would try and find a way to transfer the knowledge or not, uh, and the result would be. And now it seems to me the social justice warriors, they've become that sort of like what artistically used to be portrayed as the naive um, the fantasist, uh, the idealist, uh, you know, always the guy who's the guys in the first world war movies who were the most enthusiastic to combat the Bosch, you know, <laughs> you know, you know that their clock was going down pretty quick, whereas right. the more uh, cunning and wise warriors, um, oh, this goes back to um, George Bernard Shaw, right? Arms and the Man, the, the, the man, the chocolate cream soldier, the man who's like, eh, it's just a job, you know, you try and stay alive. And, you know, but it's the guys who are like, I'm fighting for, you know, this, that, and the other. They usually, this naive idealist who was a figure of mockery from the ancient world seems to have kind of vanished uh, from, from the world as a whole. And I think that's the result of the social justice warriors not wanting to put themselves in the lead role of an ancient tale. Well, I, I think it's part of it. I think that also part of it is that, um, you know, one of the, one of the artifacts of Christianity's influence on Western art is hope. You know, there's that, that verse, um, these three things remain, uh, faith, hope, and love, the greatest is love, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, love is something that is, is universal. And, uh, but, you know, I, I've, I read a fair amount of Japanese literature, just, you know, that was uh, one of my uh, areas of study in college. And, you know, it's interesting to me that the you know, one thing that you'll notice if you read Japanese literature is number one, it's incredibly fatalistic. And number two, um, it is more likely to end uh, with a suicide than with a marriage, which is kind of startling for a Westerner. You know, it's just like, I mean, 33,000 people a year in Japan offing themselves every year. It's not surprising that it's part of the literature. Well, what, what, what kind of cracked me up about reading Kokoro is that you know, it's considered one of the classics, and it's read in schools the way that you know Huckleberry Finn or uh, you know Catcher in the Rye or Giants in the Earth are read. And 
like like practically everybody in the in this in the book pretty much everybody except for the protagonist kills himself you know after long pensive discussions about why it's the right thing to do and i'm just thinking i even the most lunatic western sjw would not allow that book to be taught you know to like 14 year olds you know but um so you know the the different cultures have their different traditions and one of the traditions of the west is is hope and and in addition to that uh, i mean obviously faith specifically the christian faith is something that's been part of our art tradition for a long time um uh and also beauty you know um Umberto Eco has a has a great uh, uh, book. I've got a, a big hardcover. It's on beauty, and then on the the flip side is on ugliness. And one thing that you notice about the counter art, I mean, you know, because what they're doing isn't real. I mean, we call it art. It fits in that category, but it's really there's there's nothing of the conventional traditional spirit of art about it because it's intentionally ugly. You know, these are these are literally ugly people. I don't know if you've ever seen ever seen like the the SJWs in science fiction. I mean, they look like mutants out of some sort of you know radioactive waste pit. I mean, we oh, we, and what they produce is a wrecking ball to a beautiful building. You still, I mean, it's an architect adjusts the building, and so does the wrecking ball, but they're not the same thing. Right, exactly. I mean, the, the whether you're talking about the whole Bauhaus architecture. Um, uh, you know, I remember we were visiting a city in, in Europe and, uh, it was supposed to be a very pretty city and it was very green. There's a lot of vegetation and stuff, but, uh, everything that had been built in the post-war period looked like a pillbox. Brutalism is not a very kind word to name your movement, but it's accurate. <laughs> I mean, it was, everything was concrete, unpainted concrete and, uh, you know, apparently I went on a rant for about 15 minutes about it. My, my, my dad said he wished I had recorded it because he's like, I've never, I've never it's soul heard crushing, soul crushing yeah. stuff. It, it is. It's, and, and that's, but that's why art matters. And that's why it's important for us on the, the right, you know, whether we're, you know, on the Christian, right, whether we're on the atheist, right, whatever, um, you know, we still have the capacity to recognize beauty. We still have the capacity to hope. We still have the capacity to love. And, and one thing that you've, I've noticed about a lot of the SJWs is that very, very few of them have children. Mm. You know, now, part of that's because they're unattractive. Um, <laughs> but part of it is because they... Are, Even the turkey baster runs away or hops away, I guess. But sorry, go on. <laughs> but but I mean, the, it's it's really remarkable when you look at it and you and you realize how few children they have. And what you realize is that they're they're hopeless, uh, soul destroying, ugly works of counter art um, are reflections of their own self image. You know, we we when you when you write. I mean, here's what's one thing that's interesting. You, you know, I have the Alpha Game blog where we talk about social sexual um, rank and hierarchy. One thing that's really remarkable, and and a friend of mine and I have been talking about doing a book on it, is that if you know the social sexual rank of the author, you can quite often predict 
what is going to happen in the book down to the color of the hair of the female love interest. <laughs> the lower the socio-sexual rank, the more bizarre the hair color, I would assume. No, no. Uh, what, what it is is a, a gamma male will, if, if, she's a, a, like, if she's the girl who, uh, without warning um, and with no signs of any interest previously and for no real reason that the reader can figure out, suddenly jumps in bed with, with the guy, she will have red hair. Ah, Always. Um, the the uh, vixen, the sort of evil seductress who, who tries to tempt but can't, um, almost invariably has black hair and slightly dark skin. Mm. And the scary girl who uh, rejects him but gets his comeuppance later is almost always blonde. Mm. I mean, we, we tested this. We, we, we came up with this theory because I, I just been thinking. And then we started looking it up in different books. And it was amazing because the more that the author was a fat little bald guy who you know, quite clearly had not received much attention from women in his life, um, that the more that, that, that basically the worse off he was, the more accurately this picture became. Mm. And, and, and it's, it's really remarkable. And even if you apply it to your own books, I mean, that's what's, what's funny is that, you know, you and I are not immune to this. I mean, this is something that, that affects all of us. Um, you know, somebody said, you know, you need to, what, if you want to improve your books, you need to learn how to write less intelligent characters. You know, because in, in A Throne of Bones, they pointed out quite accurately that in A Throne of Bones, all of the, um, almost all of the perspective characters are highly intelligent, uh, self-confident, um, many of them are leaders and, uh, they, all, you know, they're, they're in that way, they're too similar. They're very different personalities, but all of them are the same type of male figure. And if you look at, at some of my other books, you can see that, that that's something that I do because that's what I know. And so, um, you know, we we can even apply this this sort of uh, social sexual theory of literature, and use it to improve our own writing. You know, I'm I'm using it now in the book that I'm working on because uh, I realize that there, that this is a deficiency, and if I want to cover the whole range of human experience, then I need to I I need to also figure out how to address the gamma. I need to figure out how to represent the delta, um, and, and so it's. It's an interesting, um, it's an interesting way to approach it, and I think that um, you know, but, but that's the kind of stuff that we can do, and those are, and this gets back to that cultural programming area that you talked about, you know, as we incorporate that that thinking into our art, um, it is going to become more and more um, common and more and more implicitly understood, even if people don't understand it explicitly. Well, yeah, because there's a kind of art that is propagandistic in nature that attempts to pers to persuade you of a particular worldview that is actually counter to your lived and empirical experience. And that is very tricky stuff because people who have, I mean, to me, that's it basically it's categorized insanity. You know, it goes under the eye in the bookstore because um, we call people who reject their lived empirical rational uh, sensual experience, people who reject that, we call them crazy. 
And there are people whose craziness is so deep and so pervasive that they can't stand to see sane people around them. So what they do is they spew out all of this manipulative stuff designed to disorient and cut people off from the basic lived empirical evidence of their senses. And it's very powerful. You know, crazy people can be extraordinarily convincing because the only way they can survive is to make other people crazy. Otherwise, they get that they're crazy and they have a sort of I think personality collapse or mental breakdown or, or, or nervous breakdown or whatever you'd want to call it. So they're very insistent in projecting their craziness out into the world. But a lot of what seems to be coming out of the right or the alt-right in particular these days is like, to help with that, go back to your simple lived sense data experience. What are the actual facts of reality that you have lived and processed and I am going to Reflect those back to you. Now, it happens in memes and it happens in uh, tweets and it happens in blog posts. I think it's starting to happen in art. I mean, the book that I wrote, the novel, I guess, now 15 years ago, The God of Atheists, yeah, it was <laughs> skeptical of feminism. It was, um, I guess now I know why it was never published, just even in this conversation that it sort of clicked to me. I read a speech from it recently, which was, you know, there was a relativistic social justice warrior as one of the main characters. And what happened to him in the novel might have been a bit of a clue <laughs> as to why it didn't work. But to me, it is it is really a pushback against madness, like literal, not just like, oh, it's kind of crazy, but li- like this insistent, you have to view the world this way, despite the fact that your empirical evidence goes completely against it. That is a very compulsive, there's almost no people more compulsive than crazy people, which is why they tend to win, because they're heavily invested in this this manipulated worldview, this, this craziness. And other people are like, yeah, yeah, I'm busy. <laughs> I can get by uh, with without having to project because I'm sane. And uh, that level of insistence, I think what's pushing back now is, is this get out of this, this florid um, Mobius strip of, of all this crazy stuff that's been set up and repeatedly hammered into you. Get back to your simple lived experience. And if art can find a way to facilitate that and, and, and remind people of the reptile brain, of the senses, uh, without losing you know, the, the, the higher the elevation, the, the virtue, the, the hope, the, 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 the desire for improvement – I think it's it's really very, very powerful because it's no longer when you have that level of perspective or that level of um, uh, sinking into the base evidence of your senses and what you've actually lived through in life. It's not even like you're an icebreaker anymore. You're sailing through fog. Uh, and that is a very powerful thing. And I don't know any particular way to fight back against that, except by the rage and manipulation that exposes the crazy to everyone else, which is what I think is happening now, and uh, discredits the people who, who, who deploy that kind of stuff. Oh, without question. Hey, um, if you don't mind an aside, did you ever publish that? Uh, I self-published, um, and uh, I read it actually as an audiobook. Uh, it's been, uh, it was through Lulu Press, but it's never, I mean, so and it's available for sort of donors in a, um, a PDF format, but no, it's not been published. You should send it to me. We'll uh, put it out in a hardcover. Well, have a yeah. have a read. See if it, I think it'll be up your alley. But have a read and let me know what you think. I I, I suspect it might be. I, yeah. I think it will be, and uh, it's but, a it's um, a great book. Um, yeah, so well, uh, so yeah, I, I think that I think that there is a um, a real market for not what do people really really need you to believe to validate their worldview, but what have you actually lived. What what have, what have you lived uh, in in your life, and can that be reflected back to you without this hysterical manipulation that comes from these crazy people? Well, one of the things that is bizarre to me, and it, it was something that I attempted to sort of implicitly address in a Throne of Bones, which I, I described to people as a 
a response to George Martin's A Game of Thrones. Um, you know, one of the things that really bothered me about A Game of Thrones, the series, uh, the, the, the books, is that people described it as being extremely realistic. You know, they're saying, oh, but this isn't like Tolkien, this isn't high fantasy, this is, this is very realistic. And I was thinking as I was reading it that throughout almost the entire book, there's only one married couple that has what you could consider to be even a remotely normal love life. Um, everyone else is, you know, it's either incest, incest or rape or homosexuality or, you know, practically everything except for the most normal form of human relations. Now, again, if you look at the identity of the author, you can understand he's this like weird, fat little dwarf guy. Um, it, it's, you know, I'm, 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 it's not too hard to figure out why he has a warped sense of human sexuality. Mm. But, um, but that's exactly what you're talking about. You know, you're talking about, he, I mean, somebody once calculated it, that there are, uh, there is a, a rape or a rape reference every 15 pages in these books that are up to 1,100 pages long. There's something, I mean, there's literally over 100 of them in these books. Now, wow. n- now, but what's remarkable about that is that there are something like maybe less than 10 uh, references to uh, male-female husband-wife relations. Mm. Now, you know, I'm not, I'm not an expert on, on rape statistics, and I've never heard of anyone keeping track of uh, domestic married relations, but I'm pretty sure there's not more rape than there is marital sex. Um, <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure that that's the case. Um, I'm pretty, you know, in fact, a bunch of social justice warriors recently are very upset because a significant proportion of U.S. campuses are reporting no rape whatsoever. So it is incredibly rare. I mean, the sort of stranger rape, you know, the sort of regret rape and drug and alcohol fueled stuff. I mean, that's the different matter. But th- this is what I mean by people's lived experience. You know, the people I know are nice, normal people who have good relationships and love their kids and then married and staying married and not having affairs. They're like nice, normal, healthy. It's like we, there are a lot of people out there like that. I mean, this idea that all this twisted, creepy, gargoyle humanity stuff is like maybe that's what you see when you look in the mirror, but that's not what I see when I look across the dinner table. No, not at all. And, you know, I, I remember being puzzled. Um, you know, I went to Bucknell University where uh, Philip Roth also graduated from. And so I thought when I was there, I thought, you know, I, I, I should read Philip Roth. I mean, I, mm. I might like to write one day myself. And I, I, ironically, I'm probably actually the university's second most famous writer now already. Um, but I'm sure, I'm, sure, I'm sure they're not proud of that. But, you know, hey, it's what it is. Not yet. Um, Next generation will be. You always <laughs> got to be patient but, when you're a, a, a break in ice. But but what's what's funny is that you know I'm I'm reading the book and this is supposed to be you know a great writer, uh, you know I mean uh, it's a it's not the great American novel but it's supposed to be you know one of the one of the modern classics and all that. Which sort novel of was thing. it? Portnoy's Complaint. Oh yeah yeah yeah. It's dreadful. Mm. I mean it's it's basically the entire book is about a Jewish guy who is obsessed with the idea of 
being able to have sex with a blonde girl. Yeah. Now, it's I'm a great description. Fa- One of the great things that was like, I can't remember. It's like describing her ass like, uh, was it two oranges in a sock or something like that? I mean, it's vivid. It's vivid, but creepy as all hell, which is the same thing I get from Nabokov and all that. But yeah, it's, it's very vivid and it really paints a picture. But the picture that it paints is like, that is a very accurate painting of a horrible body. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, the thing is, is that I, people have now figured out that Philip Roth sucks. I mean, you know, nobody reads, nobody outside of, you know, the New York Times book reviewer and people who take the New York Times book reviewer seriously have read anything the guy has written in the past 25 years. Um, it, you know, it, it's it's terrible. And uh, But it's you know, put forward, sorry to interrupt, but it's put forward, as you know, to push other writers out of the way. It's not pushful because they don't – I don't think they think he's like the you – know, you compare him to some of the greats and he doesn't – but he's there to push – to make sure other writers don't get in. Um, that may well be. I have no idea. All I know is that um, I was so deeply and profoundly underwhelmed when I read that that uh, – you know, I mean if the most distinctive thing about your great piece of literature is um, – sexually satisfying yourself with a piece of meat from the refrigerator. Um, this is parody. You know, this is, this is, this is not great literature. This is a parody of literature and it's a vulgar parody at that. And, you know, while there is, uh, a place for that sort of thing, you know, I mean, certainly, um, you know, there's no shortage of, of vulgarity and Rabelais and Dante and so forth. Shakespeare, um, even, yeah. Yeah, but 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 when there's nothing else, you know, there's 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 no there's no hope, there's no beauty, there's no there's nothing timeless, there's 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 no ambition. I mean, I'm sorry, you know, I grew up in Minnesota, and you know, I, I'm I mean, while I suppose having sex with a blonde girl is an ambition of sorts, it's a fairly easily realized one. And, and, you know, so the, the whole thing is just, it, it, it's just ridiculous that it's elevated um, and, and, and supposed to be some form of greatness when it's not. It's, it's even, even if you look at it in the most non-judgmental way possible, it's a triviality. Mm. You know, it's not going to, it is not going to speak anything to people a hundred let alone 500 years in the future. Whereas you can read, you can read something like Kokoro and okay, you know, you might look at it as depressing considering how things go, but, but the, it's about the human spirit and it's about the human heart. And even though uh, you and I are separated by a vast gulf of understanding from the Meiji era Japanese, you know, we can um, understand and respect and relate to the philosophical struggles and the questions. And you know, do I do I postpone my? You know, my father is dying. Uh, do I postpone my trip back to school or not? Um, you know, you could say, oh, that well, that's trivial. That's not important. Blah blah blah. Well, it, it's important that this guy bangs a blonde. Well, I, I would hope that it's a bit more like trying to figure out how to gain closure with the death of a parent. I'd hope it's a little bit more 
of a universal human experience than banging a piece of meat you found in the fridge and hoping it hasn't gone off. <laughs> or like when, when I, um, I remember, you know, when I went through my sort of, I, I think as most people who are interested in literature do, let's go through the classics, let's go through the stuff that is considered to be great. And I picked up Lolita and I picked it up like with oven mitts of like, oh no, <laughs> how much do I want to know about what a pedophile thinks? You know, I don't know that I want to know that much. And I remember when I first started reading it, there's a great description at the beginning of Lolita, where he's talking about how the tongue starts, you know, in the middle of the roof of the mouth, goes a little forward, then hits the teeth to make the name Lolita. And it's like, I remember reading that and I, I tried it, Lolita. Hey, that's actually really accurate. What a nice little detail, right? And that was the last, last nice little detail. It's in the first paragraph. It's the last nice little detail in Lolita afterwards. I did manage to make it through to the end, uh, but uh, boy, spoiler <laughs> It's really, really, uh, it's repulsive. It's like, you know, face planting yourself into open surgery and think you've learned something about the human soul. Um, you know, when it starts to say, oh, here's my description of endless photographs of African penises. And it's just like, why, why, why would you spend so much time and effort on this? Is there nothing better or higher or more noble or, or more exciting or more inspiring that you can spend your time with it wallowing in this 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 dysfunctional muck and and not only that but broadcasting it and thinking this says something about humanity rather than just opening your own mind so people can see the maggots feeding feasting on your brain yeah spe speaking of bad writers um i did a debate on uh with an sjw and he was attempting to argue that um the uh what, what was the name of that book um it was uh the Scottish writer, he he died recently, uh, Ian M. Banks, um, and, and his first big book. Um, yeah, and, and it's just, like you said, I mean, he actually has a scene that is literally maggots crawling out of somebody's head. And, you know, I remember thinking at the time, what an apt metaphor for this, this book. You know, I mean, it was, it was like he was confessing to you, this is, this is what I am. And this is what I do, and um, you know it, it was it was kind of funny because uh, when he died, a lot of uh, a lot of SJWs were you know trying to you know be respectful and and talk about what a great loss and you know I just openly mocked them for it because and they, they were all they were all trying to be offended and I said look I'm the only one who is honoring this author by uh, respecting the approach that he took to life. I said, you know, his, his entire perspective in the end revolved around things like, you know, maggots and dog shit. I mean, that, that's, that's the stuff that they, that's the stuff that they're attracted to. That's the stuff that they wallow in. And, uh, you know, that's why it has to be just utterly rejected and we have to point out that no this is not greatness this is not even mediocrity this is trash and and you know even even if they manage to you know put a a, a few coherent words together and make it look pretty you know it isn't it's it's just you know you can, you can't put lipstick on if you, you can put lipstick on the pig but it's still a pig um and, and if you compare it to things like tolstoy where um, you not only have profound statements on the human spirit, but you even have some very significant ideas about um, the waves of history. Do you remember the, the, the part where in War and Peace where uh, he breaks down who won the battle 
at Waterloo. Or mm. I think it was Waterloo, but it might have been uh, one of the Russian battles. Anyhow, he, he goes through it, and he demonstrates that at no point in time was it possible for Napoleon or, en- or anyone else to know what was going on. At no point in time was, you know, he completely explodes the whole great man theory of history in, in one great section, demonstrating that, that these, these phenomenons of history have a, um, an energy of their own. And, you know, and this is long before chaos theory and uh, came around. And, you know, and to me, that's greatness because, you, you know, you're not only talking about philosophical depth, you're not only talking about, um, you know, technical skill and craftsmanship and that sort of thing, but you're also talking about genuinely significant new ideas that open our minds to things that we hadn't considered before. I very much remember that from, I mean, there's a couple of Russian writers that I absolutely adore. Turgenev is one. Uh, I adapted uh, his play, Fathers and Sons. Uh, I adapted the novel as a play and, and directed it in Toronto. Uh, but in particular, of course, you know, Crime and Punishment, the uh, an incredible book on on so many different levels. But in it, he brushes up at one point against the question of why private murder is so heinous, but public murder in the service of the state is so good. Mm-hmm. And of course, every every kid with any brains goes through that question at some point. Okay, so if I kill a guy privately, I go to jail. If I give a guy publicly, if I kill a guy publicly uh, within the service of the state, I get a medal and a pension and a parade and ticker tape and all that kind of stuff. And th- those questions, when you come right down to the heart of lived empirical experience as opposed to narratives, that to me is where art has its really powerful connection to that base of the brain originality. Because even to brush up against those questions, you know, I mean, Shakespeare, of course, was writing under some pretty <laughs> extreme social justice warrior censorship of the the king uh, and, and the, the monarchy. But, um, you know, even in... Um, I played Macbeth uh, in a in a production uh, in Montreal, and the you know the question I had, which I talked about with the director for quite some time, is you know at the beginning of the play, Macbeth wades in from killing all of the king's enemies, and and it's fine, he's got no problem with it, and he doesn't lose any sleep over it. Then he kills the king, and it's like oh, river of blood, <laughs> it's terrible, I'll never sleep again, and so on. Right. Those kinds of questions are very foundational, and I think that is where thought is stimulated when you brush up against these foundational questions of what is life and death, what is murder, what is service to a narrative versus service to morality, Uh, what is your lived experience versus what is told to you your lived experience should be, what are your genuine feelings as opposed to what you're supposed to feel in the service of others' narratives. Those are very, very powerful questions, and this is why social justice warrior fiction for me is not only boring, but in general quite quite repulsive. And I've, I've had a tough time reading modern novels for, for quite some time. Uh, I sat down yeah. to read, um, um, after I saw a play by a Canadian author, very funny, called Good Night Desdemona, Good Morning Juliet by Anne-Marie MacDonald, I sat down to read um, uh, The um, uh, Fall on Your Knees. And, you know, she's got a poetic style of writing and it's very vivid and so on. But what it's vivid about is just like an endless series of unbelievably horrible catastrophes. And, um, uh, this is an old idea from Ayn Rand that it, it matters what you paint. Like if you're an artist and you paint a hero, uh, then that is one thing. And if you paint, uh, you know, guy throwing up in a dumpster, you, you, you know, it, the, the skill of the art is important. The content of the art is even more important. And I think that people are recoiling from the combination of high skill 
and low art that seems to be coming out of the left. And to, to what degree the right can replace it with high skill and high art, I think is an open question. But I certainly do urge people out there listening to this that if you have a um, storytelling bone in your body, uh, that uh, this would be of great service to the future of humanity to find a way to synthesize these things. Well, I think it's getting easier because um, you know more and more, as, as we've talked about, the skill is being sacrificed to the content. You know, and and even more to the identity. You know, they don't at this point in time. In fact, um, I know for a fact, talking to uh, a a gentleman who is on the inside, that the most of the big five publishers are don't they don't even care about reading the stuff that they're submitted now. Basically, they want to get people who have big Twitter followers, you know, big, big Twitter counts and a social media following and that sort of thing. As long as, of course, they check all the boxes, you know. Not me, low. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, and not you. And not me. No, absolutely so, not. I, I couldn't. Um, I couldn't survive in that. That's like, I don't know. Do you feel like living underwater? I don't. I don't have those gills, man. I can't breathe that stuff. No, and, and you know, it's the same for me. I mean, I, I have the you know easily the most trafficked blog in science fiction. Um, and yet, you'll you know, it's not like they're going to come running to me saying I mean, it wouldn't make sense anyhow, since you know I wouldn't. I, I prefer to publish with Castalia, but um, but even before we had Castalia, they weren't you know they weren't coming to me saying, oh, you have a big social media following, we should publish you. You know, instead they were like talking about the big social media followings of people who had one tenth my traffic, and um, you know, which which, but it, it's it's all about politics because they believe that the personal is political the political is personal like you said it's it's in the air they breathe it's in the water in which they swim um and that's that's just the way it is but and they have sorry to interrupt but they also have the fragility of living in an echo chamber you know the people from the right i view as just more muscular and grisly because they've um risen through significant opposition if you've got any kind of cultural or or um artistic presence then you have gone through the ringer, right? I mean, you've, you've fought your way through to something. Uh, and the problem with, you know, the fragility of, of the people on the left, you know, oh, we love diversity. How about hiring some conservatives? <gasps> right? I mean, they don't like diversity at all. So they have, uh, they're flaccid because they live in an echo chamber. And that is something that the, the ferocity is because of the echo chamber. But that's also the weakness if people push back. Oh, no question. I mean, you know, I, I one of the things I write about in, um, in SJWs always lie, is that they're all attack. They have no ability to defend. They they don't expect it. They don't know what to do when they are attacked. I mean, you know, their 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 usual defense is you know, start a Patreon account and cry, and <laughs> you know, it, it, it's it's not difficult. It's quite to, a business not, plan, <laughs> <laughs> but it's not difficult to deal with. And so, you know, I would encourage people to um, to pursue you know, their dreams, whether it is, you know, developing games or writing books or painting or whatever, but do so without seeking their approval. Mm. Don't, don't seek their approval. Try to be better and, and, and pursue the alternative lines because they are growing and they're growing fast. You know, we already, you know, Castelli is a small independent house, but we already sell more books on the average than the average mainstream science fiction house sells. Mm. You know, we, yes. we don't have any, we, we don't have the big hits yet, but, um, if you look at the size of the advances that they're giving out, we know, and, and also we also have a couple authors who are, you know, mixed. Um, and so we know that we are selling 
more books. Um, you know, our, our average author um, probably sells more books than uh, the genre authors who are not published by Tor and Del Rey. You know, if, if it, the smaller ones, um, you can just look at the Amazon rankings and you can see, you know, when we come out with a book, it's usually a category bestseller. And now, now is the time. I mean, there are there is a convergence, and this is why I'm so happy to have these kinds of chats, uh, particularly with you, Vox, because, you know, we care about culture a little bit more than some of the people who are more into the political and economic side of the libertarians. We 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 know the power of art, and there are times when. You know, there is an alignment of the planets, and that is when you need to get out of your chair and go. Like, just run and sprint and create and publish and, and get attention, because right now there is an opening. The opening is that the, the, the everyone's bored of the same old, same old. Everyone's bored of the ridiculously predictable leftist, you know, white guy's bad and everyone else fantastic and women are empowered. And like, everyone's bored of that stuff. And there is an opening now. And not only is there an opening, but the gatekeepers are gone as far. And, and that is like a wild thing. You know, if, if the guards have fallen asleep and now is your chance, now is the time you need to jailbreak out of a historical um, anti-culture and really start to create something new. You know, go sit down, write tomorrow, write the day after, create something the next day, and you will get better at it because the more people we have, the quicker we can turn this thing around. And dear God, we're heading for a big cliff, so we need everyone on board. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we we are putting, uh, I mean, we're pushing the, we're putting the pedal to the metal um, in our production schedule like you wouldn't believe. I mean, we're a small house. And I, I believe we put out four print books. This, this month we will put out four print books and two ebooks. Now that doesn't sound like much, but if you add it up over the course of the year, it's that's actually a lot of actually, work in the editing. <laughs> a lot of work in the writing and editing for sure. But that's actually what, what is a the lot. website for that? Uh, sorry to interrupt. What, what is the website for that place? Uh, just um, castaliahouse.com. We have a blog. We will uh, put that in. Listen, I hate to cut it short. I'm trying to try and get us in under two hours because otherwise I have a feeling people might look at two hours plus and say, <laughs> right? So, but uh, a great chat as always. I really, really appreciate that. I mean, I don't get to uncork my artistic side quite as much <laughs> as I'd like to in the great world of, of politics, current events, and philosophy, but it's a meat and drink to me. And it's sort of where I started. And who knows, maybe I'll boomerang back at some point. But um, we'll put all the links to your stuff below. I mean, uh, Vox is a great writer and a great thinker. And that's a great combination. Uh, for, sorry, as a writer, I should not keep using the word great. I'm aware, but um, uh, people should you know go go read his stuff. We'll we'll link to it below. Go check out his blog and uh, check out the writers he's promoting uh, because there's some really great stuff uh, coming out of of what you do. And I really really appreciate your time today. You're more than welcome, and uh, I'm going to hold you to it because I'm very interested in reading that book. I will. Uh, I'll send you a couple. I've got, got one that never got published, so I will uh, send them over. But uh, thanks a lot for your time, man. We'll talk again soon. Sounds good.